it's Ms. Okada, and this podcast is episode 4 of Analysis of Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Today, I chat about the psychology of behavioral conditioning as presented in the novel. Chapter 2 introduced us to the infant nurseries, the neo-Pavlovian conditioning rooms with use of hypnopedia, and Chapter 5 introduced us to Helmholtz Watson, who works for the Bureau of Propaganda and the College of Emotional Engineering as a writer. Chapter 5 also includes the solidarity services with community sings and then in chapter 6 Bernard and Lenina's date gave us some insight to the effect of the social and emotional conditioning that all people of the world state experience furthermore the constant aphorisms or repeated phrases that are part of the conditioning with propaganda is really important to note I will review the ways the world state uses propaganda to control its citizens then discuss the mechanics of why a government might use these techniques what Huxley was satirizing and how behavioral sciences play into all of this. Today, my special guest is Mr. Newberry with his expertise in behavioral psychology. Hi, Mr. Newberry. Thank you for joining me today. Hello. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Brave New World and the craziness that is a society, specifically having to do with propaganda and building of humans through psychology. So in this world, they have these infant nurseries where there's a scene where they wheel in and cart in this trolley of babies. They plop them down onto the floor and they bring out colorful books and colorful flowers where the babies will naturally go towards them, but that floor is electrified and will shock them and jolt them every time they go trying to reach for that colorful book or reach for those colorful roses. And it's behavioral training to train them to not want flowers because they say at one point factories are not built on nature, meaning that if people are interested in nature, they wouldn't want to be trapped in a factory all day long. So they're trying to train them at an infant stage to only want to be interested in things that aren't natural. And then they also shouldn't like books because in this world, books are bad. So this is kind of the things that they do in these infant nurseries. They also learn to use sex as entertainment. So when they're very, very young, they're taught to play together. And by play, it means having sexual relations with each other when they're very young. Because again, in this world, sex isn't used in order to procreate. It is only supposed to be an entertainment. So even from a very young, young age, they're taught that. And then as they grow older, they are taught through this process called hypnopedia, teaching them through their sleep. So they'll be sleeping at night and there'll be this radio sound that is constantly, that's teaching them aphorisms, statements, basically propaganda. And this is what is going on in Brave New World's world state. And this is how they are training their humans when they're very young to become these adults that will be a part of this society. So my question to you is, having talked about all of this, it really does have to do with behavioral psychology. So what exactly is behavioral psychology? So the context when the book was written, there was kind of two tenets of psychology going on. And the big one would be behavioral psychology. There's references to Freud in the novel as well, yes. I think, mm-hmm. uh, which is a different, I mean, Freud was absolutely not behavioral psych, but that would be the other tenant going on. And with regard to encouraging 
encouraging kids to engage in sexual behavior is, is entertainment. That's not exactly Freudianism, but Freud would argue that very early on, sex and aggression are a part of the human psyche, that's what he would say. That, and most I, likely that's the reason why Huxley uses that very early on in the novel and even talking about little kids interacting with that. The criticism of psychology early on was that it was not particularly scientific because it dealt with unobservable, unmeasurable things. It, it just dealt with impressions. So there were like two schools, one called the structuralist school, one called the functionalist school. The functionalist school led by William James, I think there's a reference to William James, in at least one of the characters' names, talked about like the evolutionary nature of what thoughts do. And there was a real emphasis on habits and habit formation. But the criticism was like, none of that was particularly measurable. And that's what you need for it to be a legitimate science. So along comes people like John B. Watson. They essentially what they would say is it doesn't matter what people think, it's what they do. That's the critical thing. And it's their behavior that counts. That we can measure and that we can actually shape. And so the notion that Watson really embraced the idea that people are blank slates, that you can absolutely shape them through behavioral techniques into the kind of people you want them to be. Given absolute freedom, we could take a group of babies and make them doctors or dentists or thieves or bakers or whatever. So that's the nature of behavioral psychology. We use conditioning. And that really got its start with Ivan Pavlov, a Russian scientist. He was a physiologist, not a psychologist, but he discovered classical conditioning techniques by doing experimentations on dogs. And, and Watson went from there and began using classical association with his little Albert experiment where he conditioned a little uh, a child. He conditioned a child to fear little furry animals with the use of a heavy metal bar, a loud noise, scared little Albert and being frightened by furry rabbits and Santa Claus's face and things like that. So that's the origins of behavioral psychology right there. And then it's expanded through B.F. Skinner and Skinner's work in operant conditioning. He developed this thing called the operant chamber, otherwise known as the Skinner box. And so the image of babies in this space with an electrified strips on the floor, that's a giant version of a Skinner box where you can put a rat or a pigeon or whatever in there and train them either through positive reinforcement or punishments to behave in certain ways, to peck at a certain light or to push a certain lever with their paw. All of that is behavioral psychology. And again, the focus is not what people are thinking so much as what they're doing. That's what's measurable. Obviously, the book and psychology in general bring together the thinking and the behavior. It's clear that human beings are thinking animals as instead of just behaving animals and that our thoughts and our behavior are intermingled. But it really begins with just a focus on people's behavior and how you can shape that behavior. It's funny that you brought up little, what was it, Albert? Little Albert, yeah. Yes, little, little Albert. Because in the story, there actually is a, not a little Albert, it's a little Reuben. And he is referenced, little Reuben was one of the early experiments of Hypnopedia. So Hypnopedia is important in the world state because they use that in order to mold their humans. They use it in order to pipe in these aphorisms and repeated phrases throughout the text. The students will say straight from the horse's mouth whenever someone says something. So they're writing it all down. They say things like a gram is better than a dam, meaning that it's better to take the drugs that are prevalent in the story. It's called Soma. It's better to take that than to really worry about anything. Or there's one point where Lenina, one of the characters, says everyone works for everyone else. We can't do without anyone. And it's the whole idea of whole society work together. So hypnopedia is really important. It's basically propaganda. So my question to you is what effect does propaganda have on the psyche? So I'd start with hypnopedia, the notion that you can sleep learn. That's not a thing. Sleep absolutely has its functions in learning, but it's not like you're receiving inputs at that
that point. In psychology, we get into the functions of sleep, which by the way, we've got some good theories, but that's all they are is really theories about what purpose sleep serves. It's not as obvious as you'd think. And, and then, in the 1930s, I think all of it is theory anyway, right? Exactly. And then the notion of dreaming being sort of memory <sighs> consolidation and things like that. But that's the kind of learning, if you will, that's really going on. And the notion of hypnopedia being a, a legitimate practice, a legitimate way to learn would have actually been present not just in the 30s, but all the way into the 60s and 70s. There were language courses, for example, where you go to sleep and you put the headphones on and supposedly you're learning Spanish or Japanese or whatever. But the efficacy, really what that does is it just disturbs your sleep. It's the efficacy of it is not particularly effective at all. But that being said, in our waking moments, we are absolutely susceptible to propaganda and repetition. So in fact, there's this concept called mere exposure, which is really more from the social psychology end of things. But mere exposure just works like this. If you introduce an idea or a person or anything, any kind of concept, whether or not that thing is initially like, the more you're introduced to it, the more you're exposed to it, the more favorable that thing becomes, that idea, that person, whatever it becomes. So repetition and repeated exposure to some concept, some idea through aphorisms would be a way of, and we might use the expression brainwashing people into embracing that. And that's absolutely the nature of propaganda. You can just repeat things over and over and over again. Uh, Until you condition them to react in a certain way, believe yeah. a certain thing. Sure. We are social creatures. We take cues from one another. And it's interesting how we do in our behavior and our verbal tics, little hitches like like, and you know, and things like that. From that level, all the way up to more complicated thought, we absolutely shape one another. And if you have a coordinated effort by some kind of government agency or corporate entity to shape people's thinking, and they do it through repetition, it's really effective. All you have to do is ask political campaigns, you know, people who are in charge of those, or you look at the kind of money spent on corporate advertising. They absolutely embrace the idea that repetition works because it does. And it's not really during sleep that that happens. That's really during the waking moment. So do you think, I'm getting mixed messages. So do you think that behavioral conditioning is a good thing? Can it be used for good or is it only evil? No, it's not only evil. What I would say is this, what the counter to John B. Watson, going back to the little Albert experiment where mm -hmm. he conditioned this poor little child to be frightened of little furry things mm -hmm. through conditioning. You put a little rabbit in the little Albert's lap and then clanged a loud bar behind him. And so you don't have to be trained to be frightened by that loud noise. But little Albert associated the loud noise, the fright, the fear, the trauma with these little furry creatures. Along some decades later, Mary Cover Jones was a researcher who thought, well, it wasn't in time to help out little Albert, but let's use those same techniques to counter condition. So she actually helped little Peter in his fear with little furry things by gradually introducing that rightful stimulus, just, you know, keeping Peter calm and talking to him. So Peter's afraid of the little rabbit. He's on one side of the room and the rabbit is in a cage on the other side of the room and you're keeping Peter calm and feeding him some lunch. And, and then the next day, very slowly, you're moving the cage closer and closer so that three weeks down the road, the rabbit's in Peter's lap and he's calm because he's been gradually introduced to the idea that this rabbit isn't bad. But that's that's all classical conditioning as well, called counter conditioning. So conditioning is absolutely a thing that's used even to this day, as far as therapies are concerned. Your students may have heard of something being advertised called Noom, which is about dieting. But what they're using, the psychology behind Noom and caloric intake is something called cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's using our thoughts and our behavior and how those two things interact to reframe and re-engineer our attitudes toward food, our practices. And you talk about things and you use journaling, you have little specific targets that you try and achieve. And the kind of engineering that's in place for like
like an app, the repetition, the, the prompts, the connections that apps make that software engineers use built into our phones, it's perfect for that sort of thing. So conditioning is absolutely a thing. Counter conditioning can be used for positive and negative. We are conditionable. And so therefore it can be used for both good and ill. And so behavioral conditioning in this novel is used to control people, to control groups of people, to make people happy in their class so that there will be no uprising. Do you think that behavioral conditioning is used in that way in our own society? Yeah, are people pacified by big messages? I would say, at least in the current climate, it seems more the, the opposite of that. We've mm-hmm. got competing groups who parrot each other's words and, mm-hmm. and get upset with, let's say, a polarized opposite there. And there's not a pacification going on there. It's quite the opposite. You're amping people up. You're antagonizing people. You're vilifying the other using some of those same kinds of techniques. It's possible, but it's going to be more possible in a society, and this is, I think, the kind of society that was being cultivated in the book, a collectivist society where we're all in this together. The team is more important than the individual. In a society like that, and such culture, cultures like that exist throughout the world, it's probably a little more susceptible to such things. In an individualistic society like American society is, it'd be very difficult to pull that kind of thing off. So let me ask you this, because it came up in a conversation I was having the other day. How about things like the Pledge of Allegiance? Yeah, through the repetition of it? Yes. In a sense that we're talking about political rituals, and in a sense we're seeing that this thing, or reminding ourselves that this thing, this in this case the symbol that represents the Republic, is important, and we're promising our allegiance to it. But the same society that emphasizes or that fosters the idea of allegiance to that thing also respects the idea that people, we have students who sit through it or don't want to say it, or and the law protects them. You've got law actually protects text things like flag burning. Uh-huh. So the civil liberties can run counter to that sort of thing. Yeah, behavioral conditioning in general, the science behind it is quite fascinating, I think. Especially in our American society, not more stringent times of the 1930s, but today, behavioral psychology is used in such subtle ways and in so many ways because we have so much more media than they did. It's interesting how it affects the individual and the group. And I think Huxley makes it a point to warn us that if we keep listening to propaganda, this is the kind of dystopic world that we can live in. Right. We are social animals. We are conditionable. We are going to be conditioned by one another. What kinds of ideals, what bedrock tenets are we going to embrace and allow ourselves to be conditioned by? What are the guiding principles for a society that organizers, that political leaders, groups that aspire to leading the tribe, what are they embracing and preaching to the tribe? That's something that's really critical. And if you've got a free exchange of ideas where you encourage people to read books like Brave New World, or you encourage students to really embrace and know what's in the Constitution, to know the history of things, to know the context of a time, to know what was going on in the world in the 1930s, not just in Britain where Huxley was writing, but across the channel and continent there and the rise of fascism in places Uh like Germany and Italy. Knowledge of things like that can really empower us and protect us against repeating that. I believe there's an aphorism about the danger of being ignorant to history means you fall prey of repeating it. There are aphorisms that are, that are actually true. Just because something's repeated doesn't mean it's not true. 
So, as Mr. Newberry and I discussed, this idea of controlling behaviors, and in the case of Brave New World, its citizens' acceptance of complete control through scientific means, biological and conditioning, is very real and not too far off from our reality. In fact, if we were to analyze the ways in which media and advertising today uses propaganda and behavioral conditioning methodology, we'd see that we in our society are very much behaviorally conditioned to accept our reality. Isn't that scary? Or does it not scare you because you've already accepted it? Brave New World Society is built upon the world state motto, Community Identity Stability. It's a world in which the caste system is decided from the moment that the sperm meets an egg to a baby being decanted and then conditioned through hypnopedia. Adults alike are also put through the same propaganda methodology through hypnopedia with frequently used anecdotal phrases in everyday situation. It's the illusory truth effect, even more so than the exposure concept. The illusory truth phenomena is the heart of the state's coordinated plan to make whatever statements seem true simply through repetition. And then there's the solidarity services to solidify servitude for the adults in the world state. Solidarity services where members of the world state, no matter what caste, submit to in assigned groups to go through the ritualistic chanting, drinking of soma, and participating in an orgy-porgy. It's a calculated ritual run by the government to control its people and no one questions it except Bernard because the citizens have been conditioned to believe that what is most important is solidarity in one's identity through its community. Again, all of this is done through behavioral conditioning. I could go through the different types of behavioral conditioning that exists in our society today. In our rituals of family traditions, cultural traditions, religious traditions, and community traditions. But I don't think that Huxley is criticizing all rituals. In fact, I think that Huxley realizes that rituals are part of the human experience. What becomes a problem is a government that manipulates the human nature of ritualistic behavior to achieve its own end. It's in a dystopia, an extreme environment like the world state where people are forced into ritualistic behavioral conditioning which is disastrous and harmful that stands as a warning to our society. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something about behavioral psychology in Brave New World and in our own society. Thanks for listening. Thank you.